When I think of real world analogies to this, like supporting a painter or a ceramicist or like glass making that's kind of handmade, usually those things are more expensive than the Walmart equivalent. But in software, it's kind of inverse where the subscription to Microsoft 365 is going to cost you a lot more than your indie text editor. Hello and welcome to MetaMuse. Muse is a tool for thought on iPad and Mac. But this podcast isn't about Muse the product, it's about Muse the company and the small team behind it. I'm Adam Wiggins, here today with my colleague Mark Grenigan. Hey Adam. And joined today by Perjan of Kinopio. Howdy. And Perjan, as knowledge workers and people who sit in front of computers all day long, I think it's really important to have something physical, get out, move around, do exercise. What do you like to do for that? Well, these days I run, but before COVID, I used to box. We used to go to Gleason's Boxing Gym, which if you've ever seen like a cameo or clip of like a boxing gym on TV or movies, you've probably seen it. It was a pretty great place to let out steam, but mostly it was a cardio workout where you train and occasionally you'd spar, which was kind of like a very high stress situation, which makes other situations seem less high stress, which is kind of good in its own way. That's interesting. I remember seeing, maybe it was in the classic surfer documentary that they said one of the reasons surfers are known for being so kind of chill and low-key is that when you go up against these incredible primal forces of nature, then regular human stuff, the volume seems very turned down by comparison. Would you compare the, yeah, I guess, sparring with other humans, even though it's not like a real fight in the sense of that you're going to get hurt? Is having some of that quality. Yeah, I forget who said it. Maybe it was Mike Tyson or something. But there's this like really famous boxing quote, which is like, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. It's a life lesson in a way. And I think it applies to a lot more than just boxing. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I had a colleague who was doing that for a little while, but his wrists got sore enough. Maybe he was doing it wrong or something, but he ended up basically not being able to type for a week. Ouch. Obviously, as a creator, your hands are second only maybe to your eyes and your brain as being Mm -hmm. key tools. Do you worry about that at all? Or do you have any sense of like, I'm sort of taking my delicate crafting tools and using them to pummel a bag of sand or another person? I think there's something to be said for making your delicate tools a little more durable. But I think for me, actually like things like yoga stress my wrist a lot more than boxing did. And I think it's just like different things might stress out different people in different places. And I think like trying all the different types of physical activity and going with what works for you is, it kind of makes sense to do, even though it's kind of a slog to figure it out. Yeah, when it comes to fitness, and I definitely became a huge believer in the importance of doing something physical, both for the change of pace, but also really because it's so important for maintaining our health earlier in my life as a kind of tech person. And I think one of the things that's important is just to find something you enjoy. Some people love running. I do. Mm -hmm. Many people just cannot stand it. Others like lifting weights. Others like riding their bike. Others like boxing, climbing. But whatever it is, if the Activity itself is enjoyable, not just the result of enhancing your strength and flexibility and endurance and general health and well-being, metabolic well-being maybe, then you're likely to do it. And if you're likely to do it, then that's sustainable over the long term. Yeah, totally. If you don't enjoy it, you're not going to stick with it, right? And so maybe you could tell us a little about your background. You've worked at some pretty interesting companies. Sure. So most recently, before working on Canopio, 
I was working at Fog Creek, which eventually became Glitch, which is a web development tool similar to Heroku's web development tool once upon a time. And I was the co-creator of Glitch and did its original design and the editor and stuff like that. I think nowadays things are very different. So the Glitch you see now is very different than the Glitch of three years ago. When you first mentioned that to me, it made perfect sense. The visual style of Glitch, at least as I remember it from a few years back, very much matches what you're doing now. And I wouldn't have made that connection, but then you mentioned it and it instantly made sense. I feel like, yeah, Canopia is kind of an evolution of some of the ideas that I had when I built that interface. And Fog Creek also is interesting to note for maybe some of the younger folks in the audience. I always like to pull my technology graybeard card here, but one of their principles, Joel Spolsky, was really the one who I think defined modern blogging. We'd probably find his style to be nothing special today, but this idea of a software engineer or a company founder who writes pretty humanistic blog posts about ways of doing things and you know experiences and whether it's technology or hiring or something like that, I think he really kicked all that off. And that's in addition to, I don't know exactly what the structure is there, but somehow the Fog Creek nexus of people produced Trello, Stack Overflow, later Stack Exchange, mm-hmm. and Glitch, which is quite a run. So, yeah, it must have been interesting to be part of that little sphere. Yeah, Fog Creek was interesting because like, it was this kind of technology innovator, and it was wild working so close to that. So for the first two years of me working at Fog Creek, we shared an office with Trello. So like, I got to see how that sausage was made as well. But also, like, Fog Creek had a lot of failures, too. There was, like, a thing that was called, I think it was Copilot, where, like, you could do screen taking over. And this was way before other solutions existed. It had Kiln, which was, like, GitHub before GitHub, but based on Mercurial, so nobody used it. And, yeah, it was just, like, wild seeing, like, so many ideas come from this place. And Glitch was one of those ideas that just happened to be successful. And how those things got incubated, you know, it was a pretty unique experience. And didn't they write a whole programming language? Is that still a thing over there? Well, yeah. So before I started, I don't remember the details, but basically they couldn't get what they wanted with like the existing .NET compiler or whatever the Microsoft stack was at the time. So they wrote their own programming language called Wasabi, I want to say it was called. That's right. And they pulled it away while I was there. A really talented developer basically was part of writing it and then also part of migrating the code base away from it. And it was like a really contentious idea at the time because they were trying to do something they couldn't do conventionally. Well, that is key to being a technology innovator, though, is you have to take a lot of swings. You got to try a lot of things. And that also implies a lot of failures. And the failures will be more or less forgotten to time. And then you're known for your successes. So, yeah, very interesting firm. And I also understand your educational background is a little different from the conventional computer science path that a lot of folks in the technology world took. Right, yeah. My degrees are in technically biology and urban planning. So I think I might approach things from a slightly different place. And if you're interested in urban planning, certainly check out our episode with Devin Zugel about cities. We haven't done a biology episode yet, but Mm. I'm not ruling that out. I'm definitely not the one for that. (laughs) I was really bad at school. (laughs) And did you find that that different kind of education has fed into the work that you do now? Or did you feel that that was more like something you were interested in but didn't end up leading to your career or feeding into how you approach your work today? Yeah, I would say like kind of the inverse of what you'd expect, doing a grad degree and urban planning in general. 
the main thing I learned was like how to spot bullshit because like you read a lot of academic papers, you have a lot of professors that don't really do anything. There's a lot of like authority gained by being a professor. And how can I put this? Didn't really match the reality of what they were capable of. And also urban planning was really interesting. This might be really, really hot take, but the urban planning department was always kind of like mad at or like kind of had an inferiority complex with the architecture department. And I took a lot of architecture courses and like the professors in urban planning like really got on my case about that a lot. And so that kind of disillusioned me on the whole profession and the whole idea of graduate studies as like this kind of, I don't know, I think I held it in some sort of reverence and I definitely don't do that anymore. I respect speaking plainly more than like saying a lot, I guess. So I guess the big takeaway there was the academic world didn't seem like a good fit for you less because of the specific fields, but more because of all of the petty rivalries or status games that frankly exist everywhere, but maybe they take on a different character in the academic world. Yeah, a lot of pettiness. That was not something I expected. (laughs) And then why don't you tell us about Canopio? Sure. So Canopio is, well, it's kind of hard to describe, but it's like a thinking tool. You know, you can do mind mapping, whiteboarding, note-taking, all that sort of thing. But it's a spatial canvas where the core interaction is clicking, writing down a thought, clicking somewhere else, writing a new thought, and eventually connecting ideas together with lines and with groupings and kind of getting to new ideas or solving problems, both personally or professionally or like together with a group collaboratively. So it's like a thinking canvas. Yeah, and certainly folks in the audience will probably immediately recognize that description as being very similar in a lot of ways to Muse. You could potentially describe our tools as competitors, although I feel like when you're so early in a space trying to, I guess, convince the world that it's worth thinking with computers in the first place and that we need new kinds of tools to do that and that the spatial canvas is one that's kind of underexplored at the moment. From that perspective, I consider us very much allies in the sense that we're trying to bring people on board with this model or prove that it can work. But part of what I like is on one hand, what you're doing is incredibly similar in terms of the core aim and this very basic idea of kind of the spatial canvas. But at the same time, stylistically, it's completely different. You're on the web, you've got collaboration as a core interaction, less about the tablet, the inking, I don't know if PDFs are necessarily a big part of it. So there's the core idea is the same, but you're exploring a very different branch in the tree. So that makes us, I think, have a natural affinity. Yeah, I also think, correct me if I'm wrong, but the way we kind of arrived at the very different takes that Muse and Canopio have are very different in the sense of, I started with like a core interaction, just trying to make it fun. And that came from an observation that when I was working as, I worked as a designer and a developer, but when I was working as a designer, I'd often like write out notes or little thoughts inside of a larger sketch document to myself. And here by sketch, you mean uppercase S, sketch the product. Sketch the app. Okay. Yeah, just kind of trying to like make ideas and mockups make sense to me or like write down the goals and rationales for things. And kind of after leaving Glitch, thinking about like, how can I kind of make that a thing that other people could do because like you'd have to know Sketch, which is kind of a weird design tool to take advantage of that kind of thinking. And something built around that idea just kind of turned into Canopio. 
Canopio kind of started from me experimenting based on my own experiences using Sketch, the app, and writing with the text tool notes to myself while doing mockups and kind of trying to bring that experience or the advantages of being able to write anywhere on a page in a more approachable way to more people. As opposed to my impression of Muse is that it started a little bit more academically or rigorously. I don't know what the right term is, but it feels pre-planned or well thought out and well fleshed out before, at least from the outside looking in. Well, I'm glad we've got you fooled. <laughs> Joking a little bit there. Obviously, it did come from pretty deep research. But yeah, you're right. Our origin story was more about tablet, tablet and stylus form factor, where do we do our best thinking, as well as kind of gestures and the touchscreen as being something more intimate and trying to think about what it would take to get a sketchbook or a whiteboard into a digital space. And then maybe one of the missing things is, yeah, being able to use your hands or more directly interact with the ideas. But I think in a way we have arrived at something similar. Text has become a bigger and bigger focus for us. Mm -hmm. We have this text blocks in beta. Now we have sort of big plans for that. And so we'll see where that goes. But I think that idea of text and visual thinking together or written thinking and visual thinking together has become sort of core to our idea. So in the end, I think we all organically develop towards a vision, right? Totally. I mean, I think it's interesting that we both kind of met in the middle, as you say, but you started more as like image oriented and I started more as text oriented. And then I guess people want all the things. I think that's <laughs> kind of the story that also guides the evolution of both these products. Yeah. Probably the way I'd put it is symbolic representation of thought and visual representation of thought both have their place. Computers have always been great at the former, but not at the latter. But then often you do have these more visual-oriented environments, something like Sketch or Photoshop or whatever, but then text is a trying experience to bring in there. And one thing that always struck me when you look at, as part of our user research a few years back, we went through a bunch of photos of whiteboards just to kind of get a sense of like, okay, when people are using this analog tool, how are they expressing themselves visually? And I was always struck by like how much text is up there. It really is at least 50% text in the sense of handwritten text or occasionally a printout that's been like magneted to it, even though it's combined with, okay, you wrote the text in columns or you color-coded one or you have a little annotation on the side. So there's a lot of information that's contained in the spatial positioning or how things are color-coded or where they're placed on the board. But in the end, the core atoms are often snippets of text. So I used to write a lot of specs and, you know, documents and stuff, as you do in a large company. And I noticed, I think one of the things that kind of defines, like, is it a pleasant experience to work for or with someone versus not, is can they kind of share their ideas? Can they get their thoughts out? And I think learning to write is like learning to think. And traditionally, we have, like, linear writing tools and they kind of require a high level of like practice and skill to write well. But the great thing about whiteboarding and spatial writing in general is I think it takes a lot of that pressure away. Like I don't have to necessarily have a lead-in sentence. I don't necessarily have to think about how prose flows. It's just here's an idea, here's another idea, maybe like lines or some other visual connects them. And yeah, I think it just sort of lowers the bar to communication. Yeah, absolutely. The free form, just get it out, get started approach versus the dreaded blanking cursor on the start of the blank page and where do I begin? Yeah. I think that's a big part of what you can offer with these more sketchy and certainly more spatial 
tools. So today's topic is building in public. And I think this is something, another similarity in our approaches, again, not maybe purposeful, but sort of people with similar mindsets working on similar problems often arrive at similar solutions. And so I think I became aware of your work through these short demo videos you post to Twitter. Here is some new feature and here's how it works. And you can watch this little five or 10 second interaction. And even without having the full context for what the tool is, you see this and it's, you know, videos are fun, but it doesn't demand too much of your time. Canopio certainly has a very interesting visual style. And you see that and you see a few of these and you start to get a sense for what it's about and it's quite fun. So tell me what you do there and how you arrived at that, I guess, approach to kind of sharing what you're working on. Sure. So the way I share things online kind of evolved organically. I was thinking about it for a while and the great thing about Canopio and drawing tools and spatial tools in general is that they're very visceral. They kind of video really well because there's animation, there's movement. And a lot of the features I was building kind of also involved movement, which meant conveying what something does easier with video. The cadence I got into was like build a feature and then make a short video and kind of talk about it, like a short tweet length blurb and share it and kind of do that in small iterations. And that kind of paralleled how I shipped updates to the product. My priority was sort of, I wanted to integrate marketing into my process. I'm just one person building the tool. So I don't really have like a separate marketing department. And so just do the work or do the programming work and then do the marketing work or the communications work of here's what I built, here's what I did, and then keep that cycle going and hopefully end up somewhere good is basically my plan. And so the tweets are a reflection of that. Like every tweet usually coincides with a push to master to production. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, we've arrived at a similar thing as well, which is the short demos, which are pretty informal. We did find that for the tablet, it's pretty important to show the hands. And so we film kind of external to the device. That works well. But yeah, being short, having some kind of little textual description of what it is, but not trying to explain everything. It's not a product manual. It's not a full top-down. It's just some little snippet of interaction in this product. And for existing users, it's a chance to find out about something that's coming out soon or has come out that they can try maybe a feature they've been waiting for they would like to try because it looks useful or interesting. But then also for the folks who are not current users of the product, if they do come across it through a retweet or Twitter's algorithm somehow <laughs> organically or magically surfacing it to them, and then maybe they see that a few times and they start to get intrigued and they think, what is this weird looking app? Maybe I want to check it out. Yeah. Oh yeah, I guess I should have also mentioned this before, like my process. Maybe I'll take this again, or maybe this will be fine. But the process for me making these videos is I use the inbuilt Mac screenshot video tool, Command-Shift-5. I record myself doing the things, and then I'll trim the back and the front edges in QuickTime, also already on the Mac, and then convert it with Handbrake to MP4 format and then throw it on the web. It's a very like quick, streamlined kind of system I've got going. I've gotten really good at Command-Shift-5-ing. Indeed, and certainly being a one person shop, it's important that you not get too hung up on the production. But I also think even for you know our team who has a few more people than that, we're still small, but I find that if it's sort of quick and low ceremony to do this, then you're much more likely to do it often mm -hmm. and even be able to show, sometimes we show some work in progress and we update a week later and you can see that stuff has changed, even just you know minor 
visual design details, if you can make it more just fun and quick and low ceremony, then you get these steady stream of it, which I think fits better with the build in public thing, right? I guess we should stop and define that a little bit because I think there are some different definitions. But to briefly like kind of look at the far extreme, you could take something like Apple, who does these huge product releases, all this fanfare, and they keep everything totally secret up until the moment when it comes out. And, you know, that obviously works for them. There's lots of companies that do things that way. But I think of the build in public approach you're using and that we do and plenty of other folks as well as being more of a bite size, taking folks along on the journey. And there's plenty of products, even games and things that I follow largely through Twitter that I actually probably will never use the product or play the game or whatever, but I just like their little videos. I like their sharing their work because I like creative process. I like seeing makers do their thing. And if they have an interesting visual flair or what have you, it can be like a source of inspiration, I guess. My theory slash hot take is that the kind of classic way of doing big product releases is very much tied to a time where when you release software was on a box. So you kind of had to make sure people knew about this was a new hot box to buy because it was only like one a year or something. In our case, we're not necessarily constrained by that old world. I think with social media and stuff, I think there's just more of an emphasis on frequency and having that ongoing conversation with people. Because we can, like a release for us is relatively easy compared to shipping a box with a CD in it. Yeah, now I guess if we were to define building in public, we've sort of already talked about sharing work in progress, short product demo videos, kind of bite-sized micro videos. But taking a step back from that, Mark, I'd be curious to hear for you what that term evokes. Yeah, well, certainly the core is sharing what you're doing along the way. Often there's this element of engagement with the community where you're getting feedback, you're getting ideas, you're getting reactions and using that to influence more or less how you're proceeding with the project. I also think there's something to sort of priming the social distribution mechanism to build on your point earlier about a box versus a continuous release. That's not just a matter of the release mechanism. It's about how people find out about software. It used to be whatever, PC Magazine, who had 12 issues a year or something, you needed to punch through that editorial calendar so you could get on there. Whereas now, people find out about it through their friends and through influencers on YouTube and stuff. And it takes a long time to get that flywheel going because you need to have several revolutions of it before people find out from people who find out from people and you get the exponential growth to go up. I think that's a big aspect of it as well. One term sometimes used by marketers that I've worked with is a drumbeat, a marketing drumbeat. And I think... What they mean by that, if I can decode it, is sort of similar to a rhythm in a song. In general, what makes music pleasing for humans, I think, and engaging is essentially sort of its repetition. It's not just one pleasing note or a few pleasing notes and then it's over. It's that it has this kind of repeating, but then with variations thing. And then you can be drawn into that almost, yeah, like a story or a journey or something like that. And so, yeah, I think increasingly it's not that you find out about a product through, yeah, that big review in PC Magazine, like you said, and then you decide to buy it and you go to the store and you buy it. Or you don't decide to do that and you never think about it again. And instead, it's more it comes on your awareness through all these aggregators and social media networks that we operate in nowadays. And you think, oh, that's kind of cool. And you start to follow it just out of curiosity. And then maybe it builds some kind of mind share with you. And then either you come across a problem that you think, oh, I need a solution to this. Oh, actually, that weird little indie company I've been following on 
Twitter, actually, that might be just the thing for this. Or just at some point, you just get curious enough. You're like, yeah, I've got a little time. I want to check this thing out. It seems cool. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the phrase marketing drumbeat. When I heard you say that, I was picturing like, you know, the Viking person <laughs> kind of drumming the beat and everybody's like rowing the row in yeah. unison to it. Yeah. And to me, I think like from the point of view of a marketer, it's sort of like we're rowing every day, you know, this constant rhythm. And it's like a lot of hard work because the seas are choppy. But if we row enough, long enough to the beat, we'll arrive on the shore or something. But mm. it's kind of part of that, like the journey is part of it. Yeah. At least that's my interpretation. Now, another interesting thing here is you mentioned that sort of the sharing of work in progress, let's call it marketing, maybe storytelling is a term I like a little better since it doesn't have some of that historic baggage. But right. explaining and sharing what you're doing, particularly if you do this building public approach where it's not about the big bang, but rather a continuous stream of here's what I'm up to kind of updates. Now, for you as a solo creator, you have the full, let's call it vision of any particular feature or thing you're doing in your mind. And so then you need to translate it to kind of speak to the outside world through a little video or something like that. We're in a position where sometimes the person kind of making a little demo video is also the same person that worked on the feature or kind of was the driver for it. But other times it's quite different. So I've often been in the position where I'm the one to make a screenshot or a demo video or add a handbook entry, but I actually don't you know, I was working on other things and I wasn't following closely the feature development. And I need to really sit down and kind of mind meld with the person who had that so I can understand what's special about this. Why do we do it? Why is this here? Why now? That sort of thing. And I wonder, there's probably a big benefit to not having to do that mental handoff in the sense of, you know, you don't have to take the time. But I think there's also pros to it sometimes, which is the process of getting the product owner, let's say, to explain what they're doing to me. And then I try to make a demo about it, and I say, well, what I really want to show is X and Y, but that doesn't work because of this missing feature or this bug or this strange behavior. And then that actually can feed back into how the product is made. Or we just get crisper in our thinking because of that handoff. Yeah, in my case, it kind of definitely requires some diligence. Actually, sometimes while making the screencast, I'll notice that something's off or like my explanation of the feature is kind of hard to convey. And I'll actually just like, hold on a second, maybe I'll go back and update the thing that I just built so I can explain it better or that it kind of makes more sense. So I feel like the process kind of does have like a little mini cycle onto itself where if something isn't easy to explain, then maybe that means the thing that I built just doesn't make sense or needs a bit of refinement to get it to that last nth. Yeah, a few reactions here. One is I really agree about this idea of the importance of the mental model Often when you can't explain something, it's because you don't understand it or you've basically misconceived the world and therefore you're having this impedance mismatch when you go to try to explain it. So that's very viable. Also, there's this idea of how do you convince a lot of people of a new idea? Well, the answer is one person at a time. So you might as well start with your business partner first or you know the rubber duck or whatever because you're going to work out some of the kinks that way. And relatedly, I think Build in Public has this element of sharpening the tool I come back to this example of teaching hospitals a lot where when you're in this environment of teaching and critique and different levels of expertise and familiarity, it brings out the best in you and it forces you to step up your game. And I think working in public has that same dynamic. Yeah, I also noticed from having a jobby job back in the day that one of the main reasons that like a feature would suck when it was built is because the brief or the spec 
was like just flawed fundamentally. Like maybe there was an assumption that was wrong or whatever. And the great thing about building in public is if you're doing it like really on the bleeding edge where you're saying, I'm thinking of doing X, where I might not tweet that, it might be in the forums or on the Canopio discourse, but that kind of has like a correcting mechanism or it kind of forces me to be clear and which also kind of chops off scope in a lot of cases. So I totally agree with you on that. So basically explaining things is another kind of tool for thought? Yeah, exactly. Totally. It's the tool for thought. Yeah, and another variant here is doing resonance testing with the community where you emit a bunch of different frequencies where each frequency is a different way to think about or explain your product and a subset of those resonate back and then you know that you can iterate towards those ideas and phrases in your future marketing. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's similar to like, I don't know if you've heard the term paving the cow paths, which is like a Mm. landscape architecture term where, you know, if people are walking weirdly through your park, then you just kind of pave that as the path because that's where people want to go. And using words that people are using to describe your own thing back at them, I think is really effective. And other elements of building in public, you know, here we're talking about demoing product features. I think when I first encountered the term, it's in the bootstrapper, indie hacker communities. It seems to be a lot of sharing your revenue growth. Mm. And I think some of that is a pushback to the conventional wisdom of business is you don't really share numbers unless they're really impressive. If you're a public company that's reporting your $100 million in quarter three, that's one thing. But if you're a solo developer or two people and you're making a moderately successful product, you don't share that you're making 5000 10000 a month or whatever the number is. You have end users or end customers. And so a lot of the folks, I think even the Indie Hackers site has some capabilities built in where you can even connect to the Stripe API and it builds a dashboard for you where you can see the exact numbers. And there's some interesting debate about that in the community because there are people who are maybe less scrupulous would be the right way to put it, but when they see revenue growth of a particular product, that's motivation to basically create a clone and try to grab some of that revenue from themselves. So that's not great. But there does seem to be this culture of you share this as a chance to have your own milestones and sort of accountability from an outside community, which I think is also especially helpful when you're just one person, you don't have investors or whatever. But then also it's a chance to support others when people do reach their milestone that they set out. Oh, I've reached 100 customers. That was my goal for the year. And everyone can cheer them on and be supportive. And it's sort of a small business culture. I think that's quite interesting. That's different from the building public we're talking about here, but I still think it's an interesting one. I actually think they're more related than you might initially think. I think a lot of the impetus is signaling. So if you go back to when we first started to see this with small software businesses, at the time it wasn't really understood that an individual person can make a lot of money online with a really niche, weird software business. Mm. And so being able to do that and share it was a very interesting signal. It had a lot of novelty value and it showed that you were a surprisingly accomplished software entrepreneur. Mm. Well, now we know that's much more feasible and there's tons of these businesses and it's still hard to do, but it's not novel or unique. And I think in many ways it has become outweighed by this clone risk that you mentioned. But I also think a lot of the product building in public is about signaling to your community and your potential community that you have good taste and you get it. Because this is not the case with most pieces of software and software firms. You know, that's just the reality. But if you can do the hard work of putting together not only a really good product, but a piece of media that concisely shows that, that causes people to correctly adjust their priors a lot on the quality of your work. 
I think as software people, we're often uncomfortable with this idea of signaling and marketing and information uncertainty. But the reality is the internet's a huge place. Most of it isn't very good. And so you have to do a lot of work towards helping people understand that your product and your company is in fact good. And this can be one way to do it. Yeah, this is something I think about a lot. I don't share numbers personally yet, but my thinking is more along the lines of, how can I put this? Well, there's two things, I guess. The first is that I kind of feel weird that people are like analyzing whether a thing is good by how much money it makes when they can just like look at it and like, is it good? But I guess I could see how that would be like human nature. The other side to it is like, if the number is too low, does it have the reverse effect? And if the number is too high, are you seen as sort of like sellout or like, oh, you're not like an indie hacker anymore. Now you've like made it. You're not one of us. So maybe I'm a pessimist, but I only kind of see the negatives in that case. I tend to agree on the financial number side. And I think most people have, which is why we don't see them very much anymore. But yeah, I think there's still interesting signaling value on the actual product itself. Another spin on that that I like for individuals is just talking about their transition from either being full-time employed or a contractor, and then the kind of percentage of their sort of life earning needs, which are covered by their product or their business that they're trying to get started versus a more conventional source of income. And I think we've all made that transition or anyone that's tried to go off and do their own thing, whether it's being indie or even as a freelancer or starting a business, you know, I certainly went through that. Lots of kind of, you know, moonlighting, I guess is the the term for it because you end up working on it at night. But yeah, when I started my first business, there was a good long period of kind of working on it on the side while I worked my day job and then trying to do the calculation of, okay, do I have enough saved up? I'm not quite earning enough from my side gig yet, but I know if I can focus on that, I think I can get it across the line in six months or a year. If I cut down to basics in life, can I make it there? It's this really huge and important life transition and honestly a pretty intimidating, even scary one for a lot of people. I think that approach of sharing of I've reached personal break-even or I've made the full transition, you know, I've basically like finished my last client project and from here forward I can be full-time on this product that I'm working on. That sort of thing I think is really good peer, I don't know what the word for it is, not quite role modeling, but a chance to, exactly you said, Mark, show that you can do it. And it's not about the, the number and whether it's low or high, it's about starting something from scratch and being able to take that very hard road that takes you to that basic sustainability. Would you be more interested in like that hearing that story from the perspective of I've made it, here's the things that I did, or I'm in the struggle right now and it sucks? It doesn't end on a happy note because it's pending, right? Yeah, that's interesting. I think that hearing from inside the struggle, and this I think does connect to the build in public, you're not getting the finished end polished story where you can go back and kind of like adjust the little details, probably subconsciously to make it all add up and end in that happy ending. But instead that you get the raw, unfinished thoughts that may be even conflicting day to day. I think of a good example of this, an incredible log of sort of creative process is the book, The Making of Prince of Persia, Yeah, where the author of this absolutely now iconic and classic video game, The Prince of Persia, had been keeping personal daily journals the whole time. And it's a wild roller coaster. And he is questioning every month, is this worth my time? Is the video game industry a dead end? Should I even be doing this? And in hindsight, you look back and you go, not only did this make this person's career, but 
you know, if you're someone that grew up with gaming in that era, you think of this as just a seminal thing. How could he have been questioning that he was doing something worthwhile? But of course, any artist, any creator, you got your struggles. Anything worth doing has its struggles. And being able to see that kind of in real time, if that's the right word for it, is a really powerful thing. Yeah, Jordan Mechner, right? That sounds right, yeah. That's the one. Oh, wow, what a legend. Yeah, folks, if you haven't read this book, you have to. It's absolutely incredible. And it's almost totally unique, as far as I know, in terms of having the actual day-to-day source materials. Just incredibly valuable. To your original question, I think there's two dimensions here. One is, do you see all the details day-to-day, which could be either because you have basically a journal, which is quite rare, or because you're just talking about on Twitter, as it happens, which is more common. And then there's the question of, who do you hear from? And you can get all kinds of weird selection bias depending on if you only hear the success stories. So for both of those reasons, I think it's interesting to hear it as it happens, which of course is congruent with our choice of building a public podcast episode. Yeah, it's definitely rare, which I also agree kind of makes it more valuable. Yeah, and certainly that's part of what we do here in this podcast. I wanted to document our thinking almost as a sort of journal for my own purposes later on. And I think in maybe even some of the early episodes, I'm thinking of where we talked about like our partnership model, which is a bit unique and you know has certain risks to it. And I think we basically left it with, well, we're hopeful this is going to work, but it's got all these risks. No one really knows. Let's check back in three years. Maybe we did that episode a year and a half ago. So you know, maybe we're not too far away from you know checking in and being able to retrospect. And I can only imagine that some of the things that we talked about early on, later on, I'll be able to look back either years from now or even sooner than that and go, ah, this whole idea we had, it sounded nice at the time. <laughs> it made sense, but it actually didn't work. You know, in the laboratory of the world where you put your ideas to the test, not all of them are going to stand up. Yeah, I mean, I want to check out that book. The part of it that really kind of sounds like it resonates with me is this sort of emotional struggle. I'm kind of an emo guy. <laughs> Like, you don't necessarily hear that side of it. I think there's numbers, and if the numbers are good, then there's posturing. Mm. But you're in the middle, and I'm not so sure in real time is very interesting to me. Yeah, posturing is one thing that I have sort of a personal cringe from. And when I have been inside companies where it seems like, maybe this is more old school business advice, maybe this is changing now and being more honest and human and authentic and vulnerable is hopefully becoming more in fashion because those are things I'm more interested in. But I don't know, man, posturing, life's too short, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, this does remind me of the issue of individuals versus small companies versus large companies. I think we've mostly been talking realistically about individual creators and entrepreneurs and very small ventures like Muse in terms of number of staff. I think actually a big advantage for these people, these individuals and small firms, I think it becomes much harder to have a really open, transparent, working in public process when you're a large company. It's not impossible, but there are all kinds of dynamics working against you. And we don't need to go into all the reasons, but basically it's because a firm has this incredibly valuable capital, goodwill that you're potentially playing with. And so you could burn that down or people could be very jealous of it or it could be hard to get access to it, basically be able to publish under the company's name and so on and so forth. So for all these reasons, it's potentially a unique advantage that small ventures have. I think the bigger the company, the more it's seen as like this is a high risk thing with low reward. Exactly. And like nobody wants to be the first mover on that kind of initiative. Yeah. Yeah. I do think the personality element of it is really important. We do talk about brands as having personalities. Yeah. There's certainly big brands that are 
playful and fun, and there's others that are sleek and futuristic, and there's others that are maybe emotional and rustic, for example. But those are pretty, I don't want to say manufactured exactly, but they don't really come from any one human or small set of humans other than maybe the founders. The founders had a particular set of personality traits, and that created the beginning of the brand culture or the brand personality, but then you go on 10 years, 20 years, the company's big, and all of that gets, I don't know, homogenized or more distant. Yeah, and maybe that's as it should be, actually. As you get bigger, you should be kind of more accessible, less peculiar, (laughs) might be one way to put it. Whereas when you're at a small scale, yeah, bringing your own personality into the brand, the business, I mean, you are the company, right? And that's true even at Muse's company size, but certainly for a one-person shop like you have, that is there. How do you think about personality as being part of the work you're doing? I think it's a big part of it. I think it's one of those things that set us apart from other companies that kind of have to compete on these are our featured checklists, these are our like, you know, enterprise ready things. There are more choices in software. It's becoming less of a commodity. And like there are markets that are already kind of evolved in this direction, like to-do lists and stuff, where you're not choosing the thing that has all the features because you don't need the features. You're choosing the tool that resonates with you. And it's kind of like buying a camera or buying like a good where there's a low-end version and a high-end version and lots of variations in between. Choosing based on vibes. Exactly. I think there's like a floor of capabilities you need. But beyond that, it's sort of like which tool makes me feel the best to use and you know to tell people about and all the rest of that. Yeah, totally. And we've talked about this on the podcast before on how creative work is this incredibly difficult emotional, highly unnatural endeavor, and you need the right encouragement and inducement and environment. And if you're working with a tool that makes you feel you know, inspired and motivated, that's a huge deal. It's actually worth something. It's not just cosmetic in the negative sense, right? It's really valuable. I think we usually cite The Substance of Style, a classic Virginia Postrel book talking about that. And I think it came out around the time of Steve Jobs had taken over Apple, and she was arguing why the new iMacs coming in colors you could choose rather than just having the one beige box, which is what computers have basically always been up until that point, was actually a pretty big deal. The whole thesis of the book boils down to, we want to say that aesthetic doesn't matter and it's about function, but the thing that's missing there is we're humans and we care about how things feel and how they look and how they smell and sound. And we actually are more productive and more effective at whatever it is we're trying to do if we just like the vibe of the thing itself. I think that's really connected to the idea of we're selling consumer software more than we're selling for business software in that when you're selling to people, the same people giving you money are the people using the product. With corporate or enterprise software, you have a corporate buyer buying it on behalf of other people and they'll never use it for themselves. So there's a different calculus that goes on there where it's like, I don't really care how Jira is to use because it checks all the boxes and I won't get fired for buying it. Yeah, and that's certainly why we wanted to stay focused on the individual buyer in the early days of the company. And there may be a future you know, business team product or something like that. But I wanted to make sure we were so far along that the core product could be very personal and emotive and it serves the user's need and the user and the person that's parting with the money are the same person, which is a really good way to make sure those things stay completely in sync where it gets much harder when the buyer and the user are different people. 
Yeah, I think there's this meta layer where you're designing a company and if you do a really good job, you've kind of designed everyone's incentives and motivations to take you to the same direction, same place. There's also some software industry dynamics here when you talk about the bigger you get, the more kind of generic it needs to be or should be. And the smaller and nichier you are, the more you can be sort of weird and then you'll be a beacon for the people that also like that same kind of weird. And that if there's a lot of different choice out there from different weird things that have different angles and you can find the one that really suits you. But I think a lot of folks still think of software as being kind of the world that, let's say, Microsoft built, which is a single player who's going to dominate and consolidate an entire market. So there can only be one word processor, basically. There can only be one spreadsheet. There can only be one photo editing tool because one sort of the file format I don't know if you call it network effects, but switching costs, probably a better word for it. And then that implies several other things, which is you need really huge scale, that your R&D cost becomes kind of a footnote or much smaller compared to because it's split among such a large audience, essentially the whole world. And then you get into this niche indie software, and there can be way more variety. It's okay if there's 50 spatial canvases because they all serve a unique niche, have a unique vibe, or are made by different creators with just different kind of basic aims and in different communities. But that also means that the R&D cost is not averaged among so many people, so that may affect kind of pricing elements. But it also means that maybe there's this element of almost the patronage. We've talked about this a bit before, Kickstarter or Patreon or something like Steam Early Access, which is in many cases, you want to see the work of this creator come to fruition. You want to see this product exist in the world because you want to use it, but coming back to that vibe thing, you just want more stuff in the world that is like this. And almost implies, you know, in the same way you would, through patronage, support an artist, a painter, or a musician, or something, you want more of their stuff in the world. It's less of a practical calculus and more of a, hey, I'm willing to part with a little money to have this thing exist. Yeah, it's actually also interesting because when I think of real world analogies to this, like supporting a painter or a ceramicist or like glass making that's kind of handmade, usually those things are more expensive than the Walmart equivalent. But in software, it's kind of inverse where the subscription to Microsoft 365 is going to cost you a lot more than your indie text editor or something like that. I'm not entirely sure why that is, but I think part of it is like the way we perceive how much things should cost with software, just it being like this thing that's floating out in the ether, measured only in kilobytes and megabytes, if that, yeah, it's kind of hard to put your hands around it in a way where you can value it the same way you value a physical good. Speaking of purchasing software, if you think about what you might be buying, the bundle is probably bigger than you would originally think. So yes, you're buying something to move numbers around in a spreadsheet, okay? You're buying the sense of putting your thumb on the scale in favor of this creator and the way you see the world existing in the future. Another thing I think you're buying is sort of a aesthetic tool to signal to your friends and your community. I've seen this a lot with things like Notion and other supposedly personal productivity tools. There's a whole ecosystem around basically sharing what you're doing in this very aesthetic and outward-facing way, just like to-do lists and calendars and things that seem very mundane and personal. But being able to show that you have a sense of taste and aesthetic is actually very valued by people. And so I think that's an emerging 
an important aspect of the bucket of things that you're buying. I wonder if that point is almost the buyer or the other side of the building public for the creator, which is they're showing how they use a tool, but they're really showing how they live their life. And I think we're all much more curious than maybe we realize or we want to admit about, yeah, how do people juggle their calendars? I don't know. I spent probably 15 years in my adult life trying to find the right combination of managing my time and not to say that I have it perfectly sorted out, but I had a lot of false starts and made a lot of mistakes and so on. Like, what do other people do? Same thing for to-do lists, the same thing for personal retrospectives or how to think about big decisions or all that sort of thing. And just a screenshot of someone's maybe color-coded to-do list doesn't necessarily give you the whole picture, but it gives you a surprising right. glimpse into it. Maybe like seeing their living room behind them in Zoom yeah. or something like that. And you just get some little snippets, you know, the guitar there, the book on the shelf, the cat going by, you have a little insight into their yeah. life. And maybe we're all curious for that. And critically, you're not going to share that to-do list if it's really ugly. Mm. In the same way that you're not going to do a YouTube video about your living room if it's terrible, right? <laughs> and I love the idea of build in public as well as buy in public or live in public. You know, it's a great mirror image. Especially when it feels like there's a default option for everything. Like you buy your iPhone, you have your standard issue calendar and your standard issue, you know, notes app and whatever. And I think showing that you use other things or that you've thought through or thought hard about Maybe I'm different. Maybe I don't fit into this one box that Apple Incorporated or Google Incorporated has kind of ordained for all of us to be in. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me in the same way that people, you know, they don't want to just wear, I don't know, Levi's jeans every day or something, right? They want to show that they have some other aesthetic taste. I'm actually reminded of people sharing their phone home screenshots. And then, you know, that's going to be defined by almost the diff against the standard thing. And that includes the operating system default installed apps, but also maybe things that just kind of everyone has. Okay, your, I don't know, WhatsApp, for example, was basically the de facto messaging app here in Europe. And so you see a screenshot of a European's home screen and WhatsApp being on there. There's not much to comment on. But you see some new encrypted messaging app or you see some yeah weird to-do list thing or you see something else that has an unusual icon and you don't recognize and then you want to Again, what is that? Why did you come to that? Why did you choose that over all these other choices that exist in the market? And then that in turn can be a point of pride maybe for the person sharing. They've spent some time curating a set of software tools that serve them in their lives. And maybe they found some that have interesting vibe, interesting aesthetic, a unique take on the problem. And then it's also for the person that's inquiring, it's a glimpse into their life again. And I think we're all curious for that. Yeah. And I think this critically circles back to the idea of social distribution. So the original idea of social media was you're following your small group of friends and you're finding out whatever, what Adam had for dinner or something. But the modern reality of social media is that a huge amount of the traffic is professionals, basically. People whose essentially full-time job is having and demonstrating good taste on YouTube and Instagram and TikTok or whatever. And it's a critical marketing channel for anything consumer, which I think increasingly is going to include consumer software. And if your product can't participate in that, it's a huge problem. And conversely, if your product is very well suited for that, it's potentially hugely helpful. And again, I feel like people are still really under-rotated on how important things like YouTube channels and subreddits are for marketing and distributing consumer software. And the software, I think, really needs to support that and be native to those 
mediums if it's going to have a good chance. That's a good tip for me. I don't do enough editing just because I hate the interface, but I've definitely seen a lot of great success stories from that. Okay, so there's a little bit of subtlety here because I think very early on, as certainly you are in mostly still muses, you have to push up it yourself. You have to be the one to go and post on Twitter mm-hmm. and Reddit. But the end game is you have people whose like literal full-time job it is to make amazing videos about your software. Now, this exists for things like Notion or Rome or whatever, right? But your software has to be amenable to that and worthy of such third-party distribution. What do you think makes software amenable to that? Because this is something I've been curious about myself, where like a couple people have done YouTube videos on Canopio, but like compared to the avalanche of Notion hacks and Rome hacks and the rest, yeah, it's like a drop in the bucket. Well, for sure, there is a bootstrapping effect happening there, which is that if your job is you're a content creator, you're an independent content creator, you post product tips and reviews on YouTube, things that other people are already interested in are what are going to get you the views, and the views ultimately translate into your financial results. So once something is already popular on people's mind, and so, yeah, the notion tips and tricks, for example, and I can almost tell when something has tipped over that line, maybe Obsidian did that in this last six or 12 months, where you start seeing fewer of the, for example, with Muse, has had plenty of, which is basically a review, assuming the audience has not seen this product before. Hey, I found this awesome product. Let me show it to you. But then when you tip over into a certain level of, I don't know what, renowned or just enough people have it or have heard of it or use it, then it's to their benefit to essentially give you tips or tricks or do things. And that's the ultimate position to be in, right? Is if other people are marketing your products for you, because it benefits them, they're not doing it for you. They're doing it for their own brand. I think of right. like the ultimate in this is when the social media companies got their little icons to appear on every single billboard and right. flyer and you know the little Twitter icon, the Instagram icon, the Facebook icon. When those started to show up, I don't know, 12 or 15 years ago, and I thought, wow, that's amazing. They're having every other company do their marketing for them. Apple, of course, is amazing for that. We are square in that you go to our homepage and there's a giant picture of an iPad. You know, we're basically constantly doing beautiful product shots of their products for them. That's because when it's a thing that people already have and use, then, you know, it's to our benefit. I mean, obviously we're on that platform, which is a little different, but it's to our benefit to talk about or be associated with something that people are already connected to. Perhaps I can synthesize a little bit here and answer your original question. I think there are three things that really help this dynamic kick off. Aside from the obvious one, like if you're already big, people are more inclined to do it. Mm -hmm. One is this aesthetic sense, which I think is really important. A second is end user customizability and extensibility. Because if the things that you can do in your app are limited to what the five people working at the company had already preconceived, it's just not that much to talk about on YouTube videos, right? Whereas with something like Notion, it's incredibly configurable and extensible. You can turn it into whatever you want. Even within the world of calendars, there's all kinds of different calendars you can make. And the third is having a way to make a living on the product. So an example of something that combines all three is something like Shopify, right? It's very extensible. Obviously, you can make a living, has a great aesthetic sense. And sure enough, there's an incredible ecosystem. There's many big businesses that are just like Shopify extensions. And you're probably not going to be able to get that third pillar in a consumer app. But I think you can and do need to have the first two to really hit a big. And again, something like Notion or Rome has both of those. 
I'd also point out that software companies getting this kind of called influencer marketing or something like that is pretty new. I think that the hardware devices, what I usually think of as gadget lust, is way further along on that. So, for example, I think of some of these really big channels like MKBHD, mm-hmm. who's a YouTuber, does these amazingly well-produced videos, many, many millions of subscribers. But essentially, all of his videos are kind of commercials for the products. I mean, he's giving an honest review for sure. It's not like he's just kind of shilling for the products. But he has a genuine enthusiasm for gadgets. So he reviews the new iPhone. He reviews the new Android phone. He reviews the new laptop. He reviews, I don't know, Teslas. He reviews game consoles and does this incredible product photography and all this sort of thing. And of course, I'm sure as influencers like that have got to be a huge part of the marketing strategies of these companies. And I think for some reason, gadgets have had that, or maybe, I don't know if it's something you hold in your hand, or I don't know if it's a more mature industry or something. I think software is only just starting to tap into that a little bit. Yes. I say video games have that too. But that distinction is definitely there, but I don't know what caused it yet. I think maturity in a market may definitely have a part to play. Yeah, it is an interesting question what caused it. Like, It could be something like that hardware was more expensive, so not everyone could have a $1,000 phone to like try out and post about. But I think this idea of video games is super important. Longtime listeners will know that we constantly say the future is predicted by <laughs> the video game market. And here's what's happening in this market just in the last year or so. The companies are developing and releasing games basically exclusively through influencers. So they set up a Discord channel where they have all the big YouTubers basically who play and Twitch streamers who play the game. And they do the initial phases of building in public there, you know, getting feedback on the balance and the art and the direction and everything. And then when they go to release, like a, a big release, a big update to the game, they don't even post it. They don't even have their own YouTube channel that anyone watches. They just tell these influencers, you know, here's the release. You get it if you talk about it. You know, go and tell it to your audience, which is already huge. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. You're already seeing it in consumer stuff like, you know, clothes and cosmetics and stuff. That's how that stuff is all going. And I think we're eventually going to see a lot more of that direction in software. Yeah, I'd like to see that. That sounds really interesting. A cool new world. I do wonder if games or games have this quality that you don't just pick one and play it for a super long time. You pick one and play it for a while, and then when you're bored of it or you finished it or you moved on or whatever, you always want to get a new game, basically. And so that makes a lot of sense for both reviewers but also purchasers to want to stay up to date. Whereas I think productivity software, maybe this is starting to change. And I'm not necessarily saying that lots of churn in the tools that we use is a good idea. But maybe once upon a time, you became an Excel expert, and Excel was your one and only tool of choice for a decade, two decades. Maybe now there's a little more fluidity. People are looking for interesting new stuff, and not just early adopters seeking novelty, but folks who just genuinely want to try out the latest thing and see how that fits into their workflow and may indeed use multiple tools together. You may have two different to-do apps and three writing apps and two spatial canvases and four photo editors and you tend to pull out different ones at different times. For example, I tend to use a different video editing software for desktop screen recordings than I do for live action video, just because I have different needs for each of those, and there's one that's optimized for each one. And there is the overhead of needing to learn and remember the controls for each one, as well as the cost. But assuming you're okay with those things, it's nice to have the specialized tools. I don't know if we'll ever be at kind of a video games or fashion level with productivity software, but... Maybe it could be a little bit more of something where, yeah, there's a lot of folks out there who are genuinely 
always looking for new tools in their creative workflow and they're excited to see new interesting stuff come along and are enthusiastic about the increasing diversity of tools with interesting vibes. Do you think because of the high cost of like learning a tool, we might actually see more videos trying to like proactively look at what's new in the world of software just because you want to make the right choice or there's a perception that you have to make the right choice in the same way that people review phones because you're going to buy one in theory every two to four years. Honestly, my immediate reaction is yes, because everything is going to be video. I mean, already video is by far the most important medium for social communication. And I think it's only going to become more so as it becomes more accessible and there are more tools that support it. So I would certainly bet on it, but we'll see. (laughs) Yeah, I can see it going both ways. Because, I mean, there aren't a lot of videos about... Actually, there are, right? Like, how to use Final Cut. Or, like, I'm thinking of, like, software that people dedicate a lot of time into. There's videos on how to use Final Cut, but there's also, like, check out this new Avid thing or whatever in those niches. Totally. I think, realistically, I think if most people want to learn Photoshop, what they're going to do is open up YouTube and type how to Photoshop. They're not even going to look in Google, right? And I think that's just going to become more and more common. Yeah, which makes it interesting because we spent well, especially you guys have spent a long time or a lot of effort making the Muse help website, which just has like a lot of videos in it and whatever. And you do have a YouTube channel. I'd love to know how making your own YouTube content has been going for you. Yeah, YouTube and longer form video isn't something we're investing in right now. I think, as Mark says, it's incredibly important. It is also its own area of expertise, quite different from making software. It can be costly, you know, in comparison to writing audio-only still images or even short screencast recordings for social media, creating it just can be an incredibly laborious thing. But it can also tell stories, I think, in a way that no other medium can. This is the power of Hollywood and movies and the magic of movies and what that kind of visual storytelling can bring into our lives. So I want to do a lot more with video and our YouTube channel, and we started this little biopic series that's on hold for now and we've done also you know more extensive product demos and i'd love to just like do a channel myself that's like how to muse and it's just me like sitting there for 10 minutes and showing exactly how i do one particular thing product strategy or plan out a marketing roadmap or some kind of life thing but yeah i think the skills to just do the production side of that is something that remains I think I have a good sense of what you need to do, but I know just enough to know that it's a whole giant world of things that I am not good at yet, but I certainly hope to tackle that in the future. Yeah, from this chat, maybe this will help kind of wrap things up, but the kind of theme that goes through my mind is that even though software has been around for forever and it's on computers, which have also been around for forever, the place we find ourselves now is very like different from how software was sold and marketed or communicated about in the past. And being so different now, like it sounds like in the future, it's going to change even more. So yeah, it's just like some wild times. I think that's a great note to end on. Thanks everyone for listening. If you have feedback, you can write us on Twitter at MuseAppHQ or on email, hello at MuseApp.com. And you can help us out by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. And Prajan, I want to thank you for helping to push forward the idea of a spatial canvas for thinking. I think it's something that is an idea with a lot of legs, but also for 
creating software with Vibe, for showing what an independent creator can do, and for the frequent delight that your build in public demos on Twitter bring to my timeline. Glad to help. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Mark. <laughs>